from Relevant Magazine and RelevantMagazine.com. It's the Relevant Podcast. You're the only reason I stay. Hey everyone, it's the week of Friday, March 19th, 2010, and this is The Relevant Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Strang, and here with me in our Orlando, Florida studios, none other than Maya Strang. Hi. Hi. <laughs> 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 I was going to go with hello, I decided to go with hi last second. Ryan Ham. Hi everyone. And Josh Loveless. Hey people. Behind the wall of glass on the ones and twos, our illustrious producer, Chad Michael Snavely. And joining us shortly will be Jesse Carey. By the way, I haven't told you guys this, but I have been in discussions, deep negotiations, uh, very heated negotiations, that two podcast legends may be returning to the crew from time to time. Oh, really? Uh, both Lloyd Kinsley and Kara Davis. Really? Are going to uh, come back into the fold, as it were. How, how are Ryan and I supposed to take that? Right. I mean... <laughs> Chad and I had a meeting that, about that this morning. Does that mean we get to go home on time? <laughs> I don't know whether to be excited or offended. Which, no, what we're one? thinking is, is special segments. Because mm. we like this crew. We like this crew a lot. And so we're thinking maybe there will be segments... The regular segments mm-hmm. that we would bring them both in for. Just like if we need a British person to read stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. Kara would, would come in-house and join us uh, maybe once a month is what mm-hmm. we're thinking. And then Lloyd is up for whatever. There we go. So just he can narrate things, yeah. read things. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. <laughs> Secretly you're plotting to have him read an audiobook to Cohen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, we have a great podcast lined up for you today. We have the author of The Search for God and Guinness, Stephen Mansfield, on the podcast. If you have the current issue of Relevant, he's the author of the piece looking at the uh, surprising Christian history of Guinness beer. Is it Guinness beer? I mean, did they say beer? It's kind of black sludge. Yeah. I mean, it's stout. Stout. <laughs> yeah. Guinness stout? I think yeah. it's called Guinness goodness, actually. Goodness. <laughs> no, it's my goodness, my Guinness. <laughs> I don't know I've, what that means. I've clearly toured the factory. I know all the propaganda. We uh, <laughs> we thought it would be apropos this week because, you know, we're only two days after uh, St. Patrick's Day when this podcast goes up. I, so. maybe. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just pirate. <laughs> <laughs> that's honestly what. That was the worst Irish. <laughs> I'm offended as a part Irish person. But what's great is you didn't say ahoy. <laughs> you said a hi. Hi, matey. It does kind of actually, it's like a, a an Irish pirate. Yeah. Irish pirate. Hello. <laughs> That's good timing. Wow. Jesse, can you do an Irish accent? I, uh. Go. You'll never take my lucky charms. How <laughs> <laughs> uh, was that? In, yeah, case, was in case you couldn't tell, Jesse just joined us for the podcast. <laughs> the most famous Irishman of them all, the leprechaun. <laughs> So uh, so he's coming up later in the podcast. But before that, we have Internet Legends, the Gregory Brothers. If you got this issue of Relevant Magazine, you know who they are. 
They, you, you all know their work. Wait, Everybody hold on a second. Are these former relevant employees that you're bringing back to replace us with no. as well? <laughs> no. It's a, a group of siblings who live in Brooklyn. They, they do music. But what they're most known for is the uh, YouTube phenomenon, Auto-Tune the News. And also, oh, yeah. if you saw the clip of Kanye West and then it morphed into Charlie Bit Me, all auto-tuned to a really cool beat, whatever, that was also the Gregory Brothers. They are the, the behind all of those crazy auto-tune clips that have become an internet phenomenon. It's the Gregory Brothers. Funny thing, they're believers who go to the church uh, that the Welcome Wagon guys are the pastors of. And uh, they've played with them, and uh, in fact, the Gregory Brothers appeared on the Welcome Wagon album, right? Mm-hmm. Is it safe to say that's the hippest church in the world? <laughs> Easily. <laughs> well, it is in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, so I feel like it It definitely is. Just by geography. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's coming up later. That's going to be fun. Um, first up, before we get rolling, uh, entertainment releases and slices. Entertainment releases, we have a few items. Music coming out on Tuesday, March 23rd. Uh, as you know, it's eight days after my birthday. Uh, she and Him coming up with the highly anticipated Volume 2. Goldfrap is coming out with Head First. And Bright Eyes and Neva Denova is coming out with One Jug of Wine, Two Vessels. Um, the Robbie C Band is coming out with Miracle. Some good stuff. Not bad. That, I mean, that's a powerful statement to say that your album is a miracle. <laughs> that's a really powerful statement. <laughs> it's I, ambitious. Yeah, yeah. I hope they can back that up. I went to a, a Christian university whose calling card was on our uh, this big gym or arena you know we play basketball and on the court on the baseline the entire length of the court is the phrase expect a miracle wow <laughs> it's well, like, which it's did a lot to instill confidence yeah, in, the in, players. in the team I mean it's like eh, hopefully they'll win come on <laughs> yeah. everybody expect a miracle it's, it's like coach what's the game plan tonight well we're gonna play tough D good shot selection and, and just remember guys anything can happen <laughs> <laughs> miracles that's great uh, movie releases coming out on Friday March 26th got I Love You Philip Morris starring Jim Carrey and Ewan McGregor and of course, the cinematic masterpiece, Hot Tub Time Machine, starring John Cusack and Robert Cordroy and, uh-huh. and the guy from The Office. I feel yeah. like it would be more... Darryl. more Darryl. From the, you mean Daryl from The Warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It would be more interesting to shoot a documentary of how a movie like that gets selected yeah. and chosen. Like, I want to see the boardroom, <laughs> these guys that... You know that the, the executives, yeah. you know, I, that make fifty million dollars in bonus like, money. Hey, can, can I tell you how it got selected? <laughs> tell me. They, they all sat down at the table, right? And the guy goes, "All right, we're going to start the pitch for Hot Tub Time Machine." And the executives go, "Stop! It's done. We're making this movie." <laughs> well, hot I was going to say, I think they have more dynamics or statistics. Where they're like, "Well, listen, hot tubs are a four billion dollar a year industry." <laughs> yeah, look at yeah. Jersey Shore. <laughs> hot tubs have never been bigger. <laughs> See, and I feel like it was a bunch of people sitting around going, "I'd really like to take a hit off this bong." And I'm going to green light this picture. I know. It could it actually had, It had been, to involve some marijuana. The, the pitch but, meeting was in a hot tub with marijuana. Exactly. And they're like, guys, what if we just did this? And they're yeah. like, all right. Yeah. No, no. It's yeah. a bunch of guys chilling in a hot tub. And they're going, you know what was awesome? Back to the future. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty. That's almost exactly how it happened. I'm sure. Oh, man. You know, they're like, you know who's awesome? 
John Cusack and Daryl from the warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make a movie, guys. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you just imagine all the great scripts that are sitting on people's desks. You know, like so many starving artists around the country. Yeah. Like like watching TV at home because they don't have work. And they see <laughs> showing up commercial after commercial. <laughs> you know, a hot tub time machine. Yeah. And really, like, it's, it's, really, it's really taking like wannabe screenwriters and slapping them in the face. I know. I really, know, all I know. you need to do is make sure that you have a giant stoner movie and you submit it. So this is this year's Dude, Where's My Car? Mm -hmm. or Pineapple Express. Or Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yeah, Cheech yeah. and Chong. Yeah. There you go. Okay. It's a genre film. It's an indie genre film. What is that genre called? Stoner, stoner movie. Stoner movie? Yeah. Okay. All right. It's not hot tub movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's a different really, genre. It goes in both categories. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a you know a, a dramatic comedy, a dramedy. <laughs> it's the dramedy of hot tub stoner crossovers. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for your entertainment releases. Now it slices. I'm not exactly sure how uh, you go about researching something like this, uh, but a news report came out uh, yesterday that uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, the most stolen street sign is not necessarily what you'd think. They have Lombardi Avenue, Reggie White Way, and they even have Brett Favre Pass. These are actual street signs in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, and these are specific streets there in the city. Uh, and someone has done the research to find out which of these signs are the most stolen on a regular basis. Hey, can I, can I make a joke real quick? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even yeah. to the punchline, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Is Brett Favre Pass an intersection? Oh. <laughs> hey. Hello. That was hey. good. So what's actually been discovered is the street sign that's most stolen in Green Bay, Wisconsin, is one that says Mullet Place. <laughs> and it's disappeared so many times, the city uh, has moved it higher on the street pole and out of reach for people. For some reason in Green Bay, of all the great people that have, uh, have streets named after them, the Wisconsinites have decided, no, 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 we want Mullet Place yeah. to plaster on our frat room wall. I would guess that's the most defining characteristic of the population. I, I was going to say, Wisconsin. if you've ever been to Wisconsin, you know that there are some killer mullets. And, and, and whoever is stealing that is stealing it without a hint of irony. Yeah. You know, I think the invention of the mullet happened because I got my hair cut yesterday and and the girl was saying, you know, what do you want? I'm like, I, I really actually don't care. You can just kind of do whatever. And she goes... Well, do you have any restrictions in your workplace? <laughs> really? Yeah. And I'm like, no, actually. It's totally fine. Whatever you want to do. But but I can imagine that same conversation happening in the mid-80s. <laughs> for your hair. And somebody says, I want something awesome. And they say, well, do you have any restrictions in your workplace? And they would say, yes, I do. And so that was the compromised haircut. You mean mm. they're like, it can't cover my ears? Yeah. Like, I need to, I need to be professional in the front. I think that the whole part, you know business in the front, party in the back thing you could, was you could because concerned. I think it's true. Yeah, concerned hairdressers were doing it to help people who had work, workplace right. restrictions. You could tie it back during work days yeah. and then let it loose. You tuck it into your collar? <laughs> yeah, no one would see it. Tying a mullet back in a ponytail is one of the creepiest things <laughs> in the All right, your turn, Jess. Okay. And this happened in Australia. And... Uh, what happened is there was a, a kid and he was like two years old and he was at a birthday party and they had one of those like claw machines, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he was left unsupervised and, and this claw machine only had like lollipops in it. And somehow when his parents weren't looking, he crawled in there and got stuck. Okay. 
But here's the interesting part of the story. Wait, that's uh, not very interesting. I mean, that's a person's life. That happens from time to time, though. But you're yeah. you're, you're acting like that's not a big deal. We should yeah, like break down to prayer or something. No, they they got keys. They can get out. Well, well, that was the thing that they couldn't find them. Oh, <laughs> so he was in there for like hours. So they got him out by using the claw. And well, then, like, well, the pictures are really funny. He's sitting in a claw machine and just kind of looking out like <laughs> someone. I feel really glad for multiple reasons that the kid got out, but I want you to guess what the kid's name is. Jesse Carey. Oral Hersizer. Cohen. Oh. If this would have ended, he could have been like the Falcon of Australia. <laughs> luckily, luckily, everything ended up okay. But, you know, I'm happy for you guys because now, you know, when people think of Cohen, they're not going to think of the kid in the vending machine. Hold on. Because you know, it all worked out. Because, because this is in Australia, right? Yeah. I, I would like, Maya, what, what does Cohen sound like when his mother says Cohen with, with her Australian accent? Um, Mommy, can I have some Barbie? <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. They had a, a caption, and that's actually what it said. <laughs> the vending machine. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> one of these pictures, he's sitting there, and he literally has his hand on the glass. One hand on the glass. Like like a monkey at the zoo. You know, that you, that you like feel really weird and bad when you walk by. The sad monkey. So we should get one of these for Cohen's birthday party yeah, no. in the future. Yeah, I know. All right, well, that'll do it for your entertainment releases and slices. Coming up next, the Gregory Brothers. Do you want an adventure that's outside of the United States? Do you want to matter in a way that will impact eternity? Well, maybe you should consider engaging Asia with the English Language Institute China. ELIC places Christian men and women in Asia to teach English, build relationships, and share their light and hope. With opportunities for college students, retirees, and everyone in between, ELIC has a short or long-term program that's just right for you. So if you are ready to be ruined for the ordinary, check out ELIC.org. Again, that's www.elic.org. You're listening to Abandoned Kansas. The song is Close Your Eyes. It's playing right now on Relevant.tv, but to watch it, you shouldn't close your eyes. <laughs> or else you just be listening to it. I was gonna say that's the best. That's the like the most low budget video ever. <laughs> Close your eyes. Imagine, it's, it's awesome. imagine yeah, what this, in this economy. Like. Yeah, <laughs> the same guys greenlighted that as did Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> uh, Band in Kansas, you probably remember, uh, performed here on the podcast uh, a few months back. Oh, yeah. yeah, they brought us donuts. They brought donuts, and they, there's a signed poster in the uh, performance studio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the podcast, you heard House of Heroes with the song Codename Raven playing right now on relevant.fm reminding me of <laughs> so the zach uh given you know sometimes i do things and i think to myself that's so raven <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since i've watched a monologue on saturday night live and really enjoyed it, it. yeah that yeah. was one of the best we've watched it, was. it a few times yeah, yeah. I, I literally tebo it save it keep re-watching just the monologue, the monologue yeah. was great yeah it was great and, you know some other times i'll do things and think to myself that's not so raven <laughs> <laughs> code name raven 
playing right now on Relevant.fm. The Gregory Brothers are a part-time musical act who characterize their music as country and soul, folk and roll. Members include Michael Gregory on drums, Andrew Gregory on guitar, Evan Gregory on keys and vocals, and Sarah Gregory, who's Evan's wife, on bass and vocals. They are most famous for their creation of the Auto-Tune the News viral video series on YouTube. The three brothers originally formed the band in their hometown of Radford, Virginia. They've since moved to Brooklyn and added Evan's wife, Sarah, to the group. Uh, the group released their first EP, Meet the Gregory Brothers, on May 29th last year, and it was characterized as loungy, refreshingly sincere slice of blue-eyed soul. Uh, Ryan spoke to them uh, for actually the current issue of the magazine, which so you can read the whole write-up there. Uh, but we wanted to bring you this uh, piece on the podcast because uh, how much more fun to also hear some of their most famous songs and auto-tune clips and mm-hmm. actually some of their real music as well. Doesn't so, come across in the magazine. Yeah, it well. doesn't. It was tough. We tried yeah. to put in like that Hallmark card thing where <laughs> it started playing music, but it's too expensive. Too yeah. expensive. It's too expensive. So here's the second best uh, idea we can come up with. Here is Ryan uh, Ham's interview with the Gregory Brothers. When I stay up too late, you still be away. It seems like there's this like whole other side to your um, musical personalities that isn't mined very often. I, I kind of wanted to start asking, like, you know, it might sound a little glib, but like, where did you guys come from? The guys grew up in Radford, and both of our parents are educators. We're not professional musicians, but they were musical, and so it was something that we were kind of always around. Music was an important part of our lives and continues to form the basis for all the, the stuff that we're doing, video and, and otherwise. A couple of us went to school for music, but regardless, we've lived in New York for a while and been a part of all different types of musical projects and toured as our own band, as a, as a quartet and with other people. And everybody kind of brings their own influences to the table, whether, whether it's Michael being a hardcore hip-hop head or Andrew being a sensitive, folky with an acoustic guitar, <laughs> or uh, me with my thrash metal preferences. <laughs> you have told me I was gentle. You have told me that I was kind. Well, how did you guys, like, when you were growing up in Virginia, like, did you have places where you performed? Like, were you sort of a traveling family band around the area? If the Radford High School Auditorium counts as a place where one can perform, then I <laughs> yeah. We were off into performing at the local Lions Club by our uh, very, very enthusiastic next-door neighbor, uh, <laughs> who was uh, perhaps the oldest member of the Lions Club. But, but generally, we didn't perform much as a family. There was uh, once or twice a year performance at the Lions Club. Mm-hmm. But Evan and Michael and I, I mean, we were in the high school band, we were in the high school choir. But at that point in time, we weren't really performing as a band or uh, even necessarily playing the instruments that we play now. Hmm. Uh, we didn't really start playing as a band until about, uh, what, two and a half years ago? And was that like after you guys had moved to uh, Brooklyn already? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. Uh, this is Evan. We came up here in kind of a staggered fashion. Um, I've been here for about seven years, and then Andrew moved up a couple years later. And we started playing together as a duo. And eventually got this idea where we wanted to tour more extensively, and we recruited Sarah to join us. Mm-hmm. She's a wonderful songwriter in her own right, and we were going to kind of do joint build as we looked to ourselves. And then it was really at the last minute where we roped Michael into coming with us. And otherwise, uh, I don't know what would have happened to us. 
or we convinced Michael to basically drop out of school to come on tour with us. <laughs> but then, in a really astounding turn of events, we convinced the dean of his college to count our tour as the last credit he needed for his graduation. Wow. So basically, you went from being the worst examples of siblings ever to the best. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that's necessarily an example that you want to follow in your, in your academic career, but at least we could feel good about it. Not to mention that there's no way he was going to graduate otherwise anyway. <laughs> I mean, have you seen this guy? I remember the time when my days were gray. You came into my life and suddenly the sun was shining. Like, how did it come about that, like, those influences somehow come together to form this, like, sort of Marvin Gaye-esque soul explosion, I guess, on the Gregory Brothers EP. I think a lot of that happened while we were touring. We were on this long three-month tour about two and a half years ago. Uh, and when it started out, we were more sort of, it was um, sort of a release tour for a solo record that I had put out that Evan and Michael had helped me record mm -hmm. in the last year. Also for an EP that Sarah had. Exactly. Okay. And we sort of started playing these songs that, like, we would play as a backup band for Sarah when she was singing her songs, and then we would have sort of all switch instruments and play songs off my album, The Lost Year. And sort of as we got further and further into the tour, we just started adding all these harmonies. We started switching around the, the music to get a little funkier. I traded in my acoustic guitar for an electric guitar, and then the next thing we knew, it, it, was, it just sort of organically evolved to being this uh, much more soul sound than anything else. Hmm. Soul was just always especially the old classic stuff from like the Memphis sound and the Detroit sound was uh, a big influence on both me and Sarah. And so songs that used to be solo arrangements for a singer and a guitar with maybe few instruments in supporting roles, when it became a, a, a quartet, we were thinking about, you know, how can we rearrange these songs so that they really fit our style? And, and it was during that process of rearrangement that we brought um, these uh, harmonic progressions from soul music, the singing styles, the, the vocal harmonies, the, the deliveries that give it a, a little bit of that old flavor that I think you're hearing. Obviously, like, I want to talk to you guys about auto-tune the news, too, because that's really something that's blown up. Um, I guess I'm just kind of curious, like, where that started. I mean, I know, Michael, that you had, um, like, that, that was kind of your baby at first, but then how did that expand to kind of envelop all of you? Um, so I was interning at a studio in Midtown, and really late at night after uh, after the rappers and upcoming up-and-coming divas went home <laughs> i would just stay in the studio and work on some parody project mm -hmm. and i you know i brought i bought this green sheet from the fabric store a really crude green screen mm -hmm. and when the debates were coming up i thought it'd be funny to just reimagine the debates as a musical yeah the, the campaign debates from 2008 okay and so the first one i did was of course obama uh, mccain and I just wrote a song around it before it happened so that I could edit it all that night. Because mm -hmm. uh, in YouTube, if, if nobody knows who you are, you have to do something fast and respond immediately. Mm -hmm. You know, like, people have to title their videos in all caps, like Lady Gaga, Twilight, Kanye parody. Right. Uh, people to notice it. And so I struggled to, like, put it out that same night and got lucky and somebody, like, posted it on HuffPost. So the, the reason that led to the auto-tuning is that Evan was like, oh, you, you got to follow this up, um, and then maybe you can have, like, 
some kind of series going. And but we didn't want to just like do the same thing. Oh, just write another Cam song debate. And the next debate, of course, was Palin and Biden. And so we thought we'd switch it up and have them involved in the song instead of just one person singing. And I've been in the studio so much, uh, auto tuning bad singers and good singers that just wanted the effect. I'd I'd grown accustomed to how powerful the effect was, <laughs> and I, I knew that it was possible. Uh, if the speakers were good enough, and Taylor and Biden were both right, so uh, it just went from there. I mean, eventually we I made it into Auto Tune the News just because that way it could be episodic. We could always take whatever current events are happening without them uh, necessarily having to all be related mm-hmm. or from event like a speech or a debate. And when it blew up, I uh, everyone else got involved because I mean I, I knew there was going to be a hunger for it that I just I couldn't satisfy. You know, by myself writing all the beats and all the jokes, and that we we have a we share our sensibilities in our humor, and I knew that we could just write better jokes together. It's probably the only thing that they're ever going to agree on, but that it was a central war on terror is in Iraq. Pakistan, that's where they live, that's where they are. Next question, are we ever going to bring up what we're getting closer and closer to victory, and it would be a travesty if we quit now in Iraq. We will end this war. John McCain is saying that Susan and she has got along with each other. John McCain has been dead wrong. Drill, baby, drill. So kind of describe the timing. So there was the debates, and then, like, when did it, when did it, like, really explode where, you know, you're actually getting calls from Jimmy Kimmel and everything? Uh, so in between the debate, which, of course, uh, ended... Uh, in October mm-hmm. 2008, and when it exploded, which was in April, um, I, I had actually done some similar videos where it wasn't auto to the news yet, but I did freelance projects with Fairly Political and Obama Girl, where sometimes I, I when we did the Obama Girl song with President Obama, I thought it was going to become a meme then, just because she's already like a YouTube star and has right. done the crush on Obama song. And it got a lot of hits. Uh, it probably has more than two million. But for some reason, it just didn't, uh, it didn't spread like wildfire yet. And then all of a sudden, when we did, I think we got to the news number two, that was in April, it blew up, and that's when we were getting calls from TV networks and, uh, would be, you know, late-night shows and would-be shady managers. <laughs> hey, I saw your guys' videos online. They're so good. Could you auto-tune my wedding? <laughs> right. A lot of there, there is just kind of a flood of emails, and then every once in a while, you know, you would get an email from T-Paint people, mm-hmm. and you would get... And more emails from people wanting you to order to their birthday. Go Taylor, go, go, go Taylor. I, I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you well, cool. So, um, like, what's next? That are you guys going to keep doing the episodic structure? Or? We're mostly motivated by whatever we think is funny. Mm-hmm. So, whenever we see news or material that we think is ripe, then we'll pursue that and make a, a video out of it. Mm-hmm. But we'll keep doing our own music as, as well, and, and we'll probably be touring again. Now that now that Pandora's box has been opened, as long as both Autotune and the news exist, there will be Autotune news. 
I have a mullet. I have a chart. I'm offering you a piece of bread. How could you possibly refuse a man with a mullet? Piece of bread. That was the Gregory Brothers. Check them out and their funny stuff, their real stuff, and even download ringtones, which I have at thegregorybrothers.com. Everybody says oh, no. the water's running high. Oh, no. The flames keep burning. Oh, no. I always wonder why oh, no. this rock keeps turning round, 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 round. We're all going down, down, down. You're listening to Hard Tour. Hard Tour. It's it's either <laughs> Hard Tour. It's either Here Tour or Heart no, Hour. Exclusive Hearts like Couture. Hard Tour. Hard Tour. Uh, the song is Showgirl and the Clown. It's playing right now on Relevant.tv. It's from their album Album Eight. Heart Tour are the solo recordings of Jason Young. He writes, produces, and performs all the instruments on the Heart Tour records. He's uh, best known as a drummer for uh, the LA-based rock band The Ruse, just so FYI. Mm-hmm. Of course, I don't know how to say the name, <laughs> but you can go to hardtour.com or hear tour or heart hour. <laughs> I don't know. It's something in there. Just in. start randomly mashing your keyboard. and <laughs> <laughs> Random, Mash your keyboard and grunt. There you go. All right. Well, as we announced when Josh Loveless joined the podcast crew every week that he was here, we would do a special segment called The Most Interesting Person of the Week. We have done it a total of two times. So now we are doing it a third time. And, uh, it and is, both have been Tim Tebow. <laughs> yeah. So Josh, for, for our new listeners and the ones who uh, only heard memory. it, uh, yeah, short-term memory issues, why don't you remind us what uh, th- this segment's all about? Yeah, the big idea is we want to highlight people who are doing glorious and horrendous things that for whatever reason they've made our list of being the most fascinating or interesting person of the week for something they've said or something they've done. It can be controversial or it can be uh, wonderful. So, which controversy could also be. So, you don't need to argue the point. Right. Ryan. Right. Okay. So, (laughs) who are your most interesting people of the week? Well, this week I found out uh, that Evander Holyfield uh, recently uh, abused his wife. I don't know if you guys heard about that situation. Uh, But the way that it, it went about was and came about was a little interesting. So, he's my interesting person of the week because of how it went down. Apparently... A few weeks ago, uh, when his wife came to him, they were at their house and started to talk to him about the heat being cut off to the residents and the children being cold. Uh, Candy Holyfield said that her husband first told her that she was only thinking about herself before then saying, I need uh, to her that she needed to start putting God first in her life, which is always a great way to uh, always a good thing to bring up. I think in the middle of an argument is that your spouse is not putting God first in their life. She said that's the moment specifically when the former boxing champion asked her if she had been tithing to the church and asked to see the check stubs from her payments to the church. She said that she declined, and that's when Evander Holyfield began striking her. And my point is, you know your life is starting to go down the tubes when Mike Tyson is beginning to look normal. Yeah. Mm. So, unfortunately, Evander Christian Holyfield has uh, has gone off the deep end. Maybe when his ear got bit. It transferred some meanness to him. That's Maybe true. So. That's true. It's like a <laughs> blood was yeah, like some sort of vampire movie. Maybe it came yeah. out of Tyson. Yeah, because now he's appearing in The Hangover and 
just signed on with Animal Planet to host a show. Pretty sure he's got a significant role in Hot Tub Time Machine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, did you hear about how Tyson's going to be on Animal Planet hosting a show? And I'm not making this up. Literally about competitive racing pigeons. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah, it's a natural fit. Can I tell you who green-lighted that? <laughs> it was all one long session. All one, light, all one long hot tub night. They yeah. got a lot done that night. Yeah, yeah it was very productive, yeah. Well, yeah. they were relaxed. Yeah. They, were. they were. They were. I would like to suggest that we get a hot tub for the office, yeah. Cameron. Hey, if it's that kind of productivity and good ideas coming out of it. <laughs> you, you get so relaxed. I'm going to go down to Rec Warehouse tonight. <laughs> Rec Warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> all right. My, my most interesting person of the week is, is someone who uh, said something more on the controversial end, uh, but has kind of seen a backlash from it. Uh, radio and uh, TV personality Glenn Beck, who said uh, basically that if, you're, if your church uh, aligns itself with social justice, then you should leave that church because that is a code word for communism. Uh, and so he got a lot of negative feedback for that, um, which, you know, he should have. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting. Some of the, uh, you know, Jim Wallace is, is the main one who's kind of spoken out about it. But there's even some uh, organizations that align themselves with conservative political causes. Uh, not that that's any kind of prerequisite, but just saying that, uh, you know, that's Glenn Beck was trying to you know, persuade people towards a, a certain political, you know, view, but it, it was even sort of counterintuitive because even like the Heritage Foundation has something that has the word social injustice uh, in, you know, its terminology and just how, you know, that's sort of the danger of over-politicizing things that aren't political, you know? I, I so. thought it was ironic that Glenn Beck, who is a Mormon, who is not in the evangelical subculture, uh, had the audacity to say th- to have to offer his interpretation of Jesus's message because yeah. he said you know social justice is a, is a perversion of the gospel you don't believe the gospel you don't understand the gospel who are you to commentate on it or its application in modern church yeah uh, that's the only that's the thing that got me well know? the biggest thing was what he that he told people to leave their churches like yeah. I mean yeah. whatever you want to say like that's fine but um, I mean like on the air about politics or whatever like. But it's just strange. I mean, I would never tell. I don't. Well, I hope not. Maybe in my worst moments, I would. But I, w- I hope I would never tell someone who I disagreed with politically. Like, if your church, you know, supports something I don't agree with, like politically, strictly, then you should leave your church. Like, yeah. And, and, and I, I just, just one other thing. I, I think it. You know, whatever your opinions are about certain you know, issues that have been politicized, there are so many organizations that are doing amazing work, uh, you know, in in the social justice realm that are not only apolitical, but, you know, don't, you know, don't really uh, use politics at all to try to accomplish what they're doing. So someone like, you know, the International Justice Mission or, you you know, uh, some of these anti-poverty organizations that are fighting corruption, right. but they're not doing, they're not fighting politics, you know, right. they're working with politicians to see that the right change kind of happens. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what they're, but what they're going against isn't a polit or, or fighting for, isn't a political ideology. It's for basic human rights, you know, which supersedes any political preference. And, 
and for him to draw that line, you know, is, is really unfortunate. Well, they're really, I mean, one of the ridiculous things too, is that he pointed or he like one of his big things was saying that like Nazis and communists have both used this term social justice in the past. Well, it's like, I mean, well maybe, but I mean, how many people who oppose abortion have said horrible things in the past? Right. And like, I mean, we try to fight against you know, that kind of idiocy being equivocated with all people who oppose abortion. Like, I don't understand how then he can come around and say that anyone who supports social justice is automatically a Nazi. I believe that, you know, there are churches that have perverted the gospel and put too much emphasis on on social justice, just like there are churches that perverted the gospel by focusing on only one aspect of doctrine, the prosperity gospel or others. There's a horizontal aspect to the gospel and there's a vertical aspect to the gospel. And, uh, the salvation through Christ, eternal life, heaven, that's the vertical, but there is a being the hands and feet of Christ here on this earth. Mm-hmm. And I believe that Jesus talked a lot about that. Right. One without the other is a perversion. I right. believe it's an incomplete gospel. So sure, there are some that are out of balance, but at its core, the message of social justice and helping being selfless and outward and intentional and sacrificial and how we live our lives is, 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 is in the gospel message just as much as you know, many other things. And so to just say that all social justice in church context is a perversion of the gospel just shows a lack of understanding. And uh, he's just somebody who's kind of a, and and I don't care if you agree with him, not he and other shock jocks like him are hate mongers who try to rile up people to get reactions and talk about them. And and the truth is the, even the idea and the concept and ideology of social justice is not exclusively a Christian term. No. Right. So, so yeah. So for him to try to pick a fight with the evangelical church and contemporary (laughs) churches that use that term is ironic as if that's like some sort of ridiculous Christian idea. Well, even evangelical, I mean, Catholic charities, I mean, the social justice is so in the DNA of right. go to Africa and almost every mission is Catholic. Well, know? that's what they pointed out is that like, I mean, I saw a few people po- pointed out that like, I think in the, ca- like in the catechism, like social justice is part of like a category, yeah. like in the, ca- like Roman Catholic catechism. He's picking a big fight that he uh, is not prepared for. Well, is the he's picking a here. fight that he didn't realize he was picking yeah. because yeah. I think yeah. it's become a very person. I think justice issues have become very personal to the church and as a result you're you're picking at one of the defining values of the dna of our generation right now and yeah. i think that's part of the storm that's been kicked up i agree and, and it's and it's showing uh, a generational divide even in um christians of an older generation that have shifted their uh belief systems toward conservative politics and a generation coming up that hasn't right and so this political spiritual church world thing is all blurred together and i think i think that you're right that this has become a big issue because it's illuminating a lot of stuff that's been simmering i'm just gonna add i think one of the main problems too and what it highlights is you know not so more than just his you know words that are you know speaking out against social justice it's almost as if he's acknowledging that there aren't injustices and i think that's even worse you know because uh, any solution starts with recognizing that hey there are people that really need help there are you know people that are in bad circumstances that we can actually advocate for but when you don't even acknowledge the injustice uh, you know I, I really feel like you know that's that's setting everything that a lot of people in the church are doing back 
you know, or, or if, the, if the, you refuse to acknowledge injustice that doesn't align with your political, um, whatever you're trying to accomplish, you know? The weird thing to me is a lot of conservatives say we should have smaller government and social justice work shouldn't be up to the government. It should be up to individuals. Right. So now you're saying individuals. So now he's saying that social justice shouldn't be up to Christians. So it's just secular people who should care about God's creation and care about God's children and human life. And I mean, Christians believe in the sanctity of life at a deeper level than people who don't believe in a creator. Mm -hmm. And so Christians should be more compelled on an individual level and a collective level in a community or congregation of believers to do the act work of social justice than any other organization on earth. And that's what's ignorant about his comment is a church that talks about that level of social justice is not trying to get their churches in most cases to vote differently so that the government will change it. In most cases, you know, churches talks about social justice. They are trying to mobilize individual people to take their choice of freedom and empower other people who don't, you know, have some of the things that they do. So, and, and, and yeah, I think Cameron, you nailed it on the head. I mean, uh, you know, how many times do you, you know, you hear from, uh, you know, a lot of the, 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 you know, politically conservative, the art, you know, their, their argument is, you know, there are certain roles that the government should fulfill and there's certain roles that should filter down to individuals and, and organizations and the church. But when, but when you go and say, oh, well, no, now it's not the church. It's nobody's job. No one should worry about the people that are suffering from injustice. I mean, it's just, you know, it just seems like ignorance, you know? I would like to know who Glenn Beck thinks should care about injustice and, and right. do the work. Well, of, apparently it's just communists and Nazis that. Right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody pays this guy to have a microphone. Yeah, That's right. unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Don't a lot of Christians look up to Glenn Beck. I would say that if you happen to just randomly visit the typical Christian family, you know, they're in their fifties at eight o'clock on a weeknight, probably Fox news is on. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's he's a voice that they look to, whether or not they agree with I feel with even them. like on people that I follow on Twitter and whatnot, I see, you know, going to see Glenn Beck in person or, you know. Yeah. So. I, well, I think, honestly, after this, people are kind of maybe going, hmm, maybe he doesn't quite mm -hmm. understand right. what I believe. But still. Uh, so he's your most interesting person of the week, huh, Jesse? <laughs> well, for this reason, you know yeah, what I mean? It, 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 I think what he said has garnered a lot of, uh, you know, really interesting discussion and, and uh, has really made some people come to, you know, grips with, you know, where their idea of social justice, you know, not only falls like in a political sense, but also in their in their personal sense, mm -hmm. because I think it is a personal reaction when someone says something like that. Right. Right, because I mean, I think all of us agree, like even on this podcast, even if we differ, differ how it should be done, like we all agree that people should be helped. I mean, yeah. like I think they're probably, I mean, in the relevant office, I know there are a range of opinions on how involved the government should be or not should be, but like everyone still agrees that something should be done. Like that's our common, because right. like you said, we all, we're all Christians and we believe in the dignity of humans. Right. All right, well, that'll be a good place to wrap it. Both Ryan and Maya have people as well, but this segment went a little long, and, and Steve Mansfield is still coming up. So, um, All right, that'll do it for this edition of The Most Interesting Person of the Week. Stay tuned for Stephen Mansfield. Fighting to eat, and we wonder when we'll be free. So we patiently wait for that fateful day. It's not far away, but for now we say, when I get older, I will be stronger. Just like a waving flag And then it goes
You're listening to Kanon. The song is Waven Flag. It's playing right now on Relevant.fm and Relevant.tv. If you uh, haven't tuned in to Relevant FM in a bit, the playlist is getting nothing but better and better and better. And uh, there's an, a desktop app for Mac users. And an iPhone app is now officially in development. So uh, those of you on iPhones will be able to stream it probably in about a month to six weeks or so. No promises. Um, before we move on to Stephen Mansfield, I want to mention two things. We have a big contest coming up with Steven that you'll hear about after his interview. But speaking of I, I apps and iPhone apps, uh, remind, we have a big giveaway going on this week. And this podcast will be going up right at the end of it. But there's still a few days left. But we this week are partnering with Craig Rochelle's new book called The Christian Atheist. And it's not as weird as it sounds. Uh, it's actually a really good message. But uh, we're partnering with uh, this book launch we are giving away three iPads to relevant listeners. All you have to do is go over to the relevant website and there's all the information is right there. Uh, basically, the way you enter is you retweet that you just entered and there's a little tweet thing there. You just kind of... Or you can post it on your Facebook, one or the other. So it's just real simple. You go there. You don't have to sign up. No email, no marketing list, nothing. Just go there and you send out a tweet mentioning the contest and uh, you're entered to win. And we were picking three winners all week long. So anyway, we are giving away iPads, people. Come on. That's high rolling. That's high rolling. (laughs) Slow clapping. (laughs) Nice. Sorry. Steven Mansfield is a popular speaker, New York Times bestselling author, leader and advisor whose work is centered on faith, character, and leadership in the service of society. He's written uh, uh, books on a wide variety of topics, such as the character of Winston Churchill, the faith of George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. Those are separate books. Oh, yeah. Um, a, a long list of books. As a PhD in history and literature, Stephen lectures at colleges and universities around the country. He's known for speeches that offer a unique blend of uh, timely cultural insight, inspiration, and the pages of history and humor. Uh, his most recent work is uh, one that we featured in the current issue of Relevant Magazine. It's called The Search for God and Guinness, and it tells the surprising history of Christian history of, of Guinness beer, not only why it was invented, but then what the family has done with the wealth um, in social justice and charity. Uh, uh, because <laughs> Dirty commies. A lot of it was sparked at a church service where John Wesley was speaking. It's a really interesting story. Our editorial director, Roxanne Weeman, uh, interviewed Stephen Mansfield about the story. And here is that interview. For those who um, haven't read the article in Relevant yet or um, haven't read the book yet, could you give just a, a quick little teaser of what... Um, kind of what the origin of, of the story is and of Guinness? Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, in, in the late 1700s, about the time that our founding fathers were giving birth to this country, there was a guy in Dublin named Arthur Guinness, and he was a brewer, and he was a really good brewer. And uh, that's probably, he probably would not even have appeared in the pages of history, except that he happened to hear John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church and a revival leader, preach about the obligation of the rich to the poor and about how uh, wealth is actually a calling of its own. Why John Wesley believed that if you had a lot of money, that was evidence that God was calling you to do good with that money in the world. Well, Arthur Guinness believed that. And so he built this company, this Guinness Brewing Company, uh, on that principle that, uh, that great wealth meant 
that there ought to be great obligation to society. And so they did two things, basically, he and his descendants that continued down for hundreds of years afterwards. They not only built the company so that they took care of their employees internally in a way as to change lives, but they also gave millions and millions and millions of dollars outside of the company uh, to make a difference in poverty. So, for example, if you had worked for Guinness in 1928, uh, you would have had round-the-clock medical care, on-site medical care. You would have had dental care. You would have had massage therapy. Wow. They would have paid for your funeral, paid for you, helped you buy a house. They would have educated your children. Um, they would have paid you, for example, to go into the country uh, every year with your family and breathe non-city air. And They would have paid for everything from the train mm-hmm. tickets to the food to the entertainment, all of it. Um, it's uh, unbelievable. They, would have, they had reading rooms, libraries. Um, they had, they had uh, places for people to go and rest outside of, uh, of, the, of the actual corporate grounds. Um, they had a sanitarium, which was, was more about uh, lung problems than it was about anything mental. It just went on and on and on. And they gave every, every employee two pints of beer a day. <laughs> so uh, all that to say that, you know, here's this company that's trying to change lives with its profits. Uh, yes, sell great beer, absolutely. Uh, and they have. It's one of the most remarkable brands of beer in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but really make a difference in the lives of people who both worked for them and who were outside. And, you know, really in 1928, they were rivaling uh, the, the kind of benefits that Google and Microsoft right. made today, you know, and they're supposed to be real cutting edge. So all of that to say that this is what the book is about. It's how this company decided to brew something as pagan and secular and demonic mm-hmm. as beer, for heaven's sakes, um, joking, of course, and, and yet used that, the profits to change the lives of people in their company and then change the lives of millions outside their company. Why do you think the faith history of Guinness is important to, to that company and to um, just to how they how they work with their employees and all of that? Well, we often hear from corporate leaders that they can't do some of the benevolent things that uh, the average guy in the street thinks they ought to do with their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often hear excuses, and we also hear often hear dodges. But uh, you know, the Guinness Company today is one of the most recognized brands in the world. Ten million pints of Guinness are consumed every day around the world. Um, their their television commercials are you know award winning, and everybody knows them. Even the young know them. You know, you don't have to be World War II generation to know them. Um, it's a very 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 successful company, and it lasted mm-hmm. for 250 years. At the same time, they did just unbelievable good in transforming po- poverty around the world and funding great projects and doing uh, just massive amounts of good. And so, you know, I, I think that folks do not know that story because we often don't tell uh, the backstory of corporations. And I think that uh, when, when people start to drink from it, to use a phrase I probably shouldn't use, but when they drink from that story, you know, they drink from the stream of that heritage, um, they're really inspired by it. But people in the West don't know it very much, meaning people in the United States, because the Guinness mm-hmm. is not as popular over here as it is in Europe. And uh, I think the people are, around the world are, are vaguely aware of it, but, uh, but once you bring it to the floor, it really provides a source of inspiration for people. So um, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a powerful story with a lot of amazing... Uh, sort of twists and turns in it. You hinted at it a little, but of course, America, especially American Christianity, has uh, 
a long-standing tension with alcohol yes. and with beer. And how have you sort of seen that uh, that tension when you've been writing the book or when you've been talking to this without people or people go, well, he couldn't have been a Christian. He was, Arthur Guinness was brewing beer. Have yeah, you have absolutely. you run into that? Absolutely. I mean, I need to say right up front, I don't care if one person starts drinking after, after reading this book, you know, when they didn't drink before. That's not my point. But, but you're absolutely right. There's this weird tension in American history about alcohol, um, and it has to do with several things. It has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, on the American frontier, there was a lot of excess about alcohol. There was a lot of drunkenness, and a lot of the women got together and said, that's enough, and that's where you have the carry nations and the anti-saloon leagues and all of that kind of thing. But we, we, we've done some very unwise things. For example, our experiment with prohibition in the early, uh, you know, early in the last century, where our government basically banned alcohol sales, actually in call, caused hard alcohol consumption to increase mm-hmm. and did a lot of damage. And so a, a lot of what's caused the extremes in American history is that uh, we've shut down the breweries. Uh, we've not emphasized beer. We've tended to emphasize harder liquors. Mm-hmm. And we've also been unbiblical about the consumption of alcohol. Um, you know, the scriptures teach us that alcohol is perfectly acceptable. It's the drunkenness that is sin. I mean, Jesus actually created the stuff. He drank the stuff. There's no question about it. The early church had to be warned not to get drunk at their communion services because they were using real wine. Uh, the idea that it was grape juice, uh, unfermented grape juice, is just silly. It's not mm-hmm. supported by the Greek or by history or even by the context of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So my, my point is not to get people to drink. My point is to get people to think biblically about alcohol, whether they drink it or not. Uh, I personally don't drink beer. I know that's strange for a guy who wrote a book on beer. Um, I don't mind an occasional glass of you know, wine or margarita or whatever with my wife, but I, but I don't enjoy beer. But, but beer is a safer alternative to hard liquor. It's, uh, it's got a lot of vitamins our bodies need, and, and people certainly need it earlier in history when diets weren't as good. Um, and so the moderate use of alcohol is a biblical uh, lifestyle, is biblically mandated. It's the excess, it's the drunkenness. And, you know, if I can be really blunt, for example, we, we all know uh, of situations where, you know, the church or this particular Christian school or whatever is radically anti-alcohol in any form, and yet lots of people are sneaking off to drink in private and drink on their own and drink to excess. And so that's what that does. If you're not biblical about it, if you're not just saying, look, alcohol is a normal part of life, we do it in moderation, we don't do it in excess, drunkenness is sin, then you you end up creating this kind of secret, sneaky, behind the high school gym, you know, uh, kind of kind of hidden culture, and that actually makes it worse. And so one of the things that's happening today is, I think, a very healthy thing where people are getting healthy about alcohol. Drink, don't drink, but if you're going to drink, do it openly, do it publicly, do it as a matter of, uh, you know, your normal life, and don't do it to excess, don't do it to the point of drunkenness. And so, yeah, in, in the writing of this book, I've certainly had people react negatively. In fact, the mm-hmm. title was intended to be incendiary. And right. I've known friends to be sitting on planes reading a book about God and Guinness and have folks say, what the heck are you <laughs> reading? And then when they told them the story, they really got excited about it. Did Arthur Guinness ever um, have to wrestle with that himself, the, the whole social ills argument and people using beer to get drunk? Did he ever address that or talk about that? You know, it, it, it just wasn't an issue in their day. I mm-hmm. think we do need to address it today. But Arthur Guinness and his day, I mean, they lived in a world where actually beer had been sort of a savior. Um, right. Just very, very briefly, right before Arthur Guinness was uh, born or before he became came to prominence, 
we had been living in England and in the British Isles in a thing called the gin craze. Parliament had outlawed the impartation of alcohol. And so um, the, the, the people in the British Isles began to make their own gin and their own whiskey, and then, of course, they drank it to amazing uh, excess, and there, it, was a, it was an actual plague of drunkenness and alcoholism. Well, to answer that, a lot of monks, even evangelicals, began to brew beer, because, again, brew, beer is lower in alcohol, it's refreshing, it's physically healthy, it didn't do the destruction of the gin and the whiskey that people were consuming in excess. And so, actually, by the time that Arthur Guinness came to prominence, um, brewing was seen as a noble profession that actually had some sense of social benefit to it. And, um, in fact, there are some famous prints by Hogarth, H-O-G-A-R-T-H, where he has Beer, beer Lane, um, where, where he shows people happy and healthy and, and uh, there's not poverty. And then the other, it's contrasted with Gin Alley. Mm-hmm. And Gin Alley is just ridden with poverty and the only person making any money is the pawnbroker because drunkenness just destroyed society. So mm-hmm. he never had to wrestle with it. Now, later generations of Guinnesses did. Um, and they, you know, they, of course, as, as good, solid Christians, came to the same conclusion I think we all ought to come to, which is that, that the consumption of alcohol is, is perfectly biblical and legitimate and even healthy for us, but that taking it in excess, of course, is, is sin and destructive. And that's, that's what they always tried to urge. Is this faith environment and generous environment still present in in the Guinness company today? You know, Guinness as a company is now owned by Diageo, which is a great big multinational drinks company, as the British call it. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's interesting is that Diageo people, who are Italians and and don't have that kind of British, um, you know, that Christian heritage, uh, uh, all of the the Irish uh, that Guinness has, um, the the, uh, Diageo people will tell you that there's something unique about Guinness folks, that even Mm -hmm. when you bring on a young, new executive, in the Guinness world, um, in the Guinness company, that the Guinness heritage is so powerful, and and the memory of what the Guinnesses have done is so powerful, and people feel so privileged to work for Guinness uh, that even if they're young and they weren't part of the you know early heritage or they don't really you know haven't really known much about it, they tend to learn and absorb that heritage uh, so that it changes them. And Diageo mm-hmm. will tell you that Guinness, of all the companies they own, is the is the most heritage oriented, is the most benevolent. The workers are the most most excited to be doing what they're doing because uh, they are they are remembering this great heritage of making a difference in the world. And to this day, Guinness gives more than most companies in the world gives to social causes. Do you think it's our, our Christian responsibility to drink Guinness now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine there's some folks listening who are going to go, awesome, I'm going to go out and drink Guinness right now. And if that's what they want to do, that's fine. Just don't drink it to excess. But no, I I do, however, think that while it's not our obligation to drink Guinness, I do think it's our obligation to help people be more biblical Mm -hmm. uh, in their approach to alcohol. Um, to be anti-alcohol in, in, in total is not the biblical response. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you personally drink or not. I mean, that's, that's a conscience choice on your own, or it might be a matter of your own taste buds. I don't happen to like the taste of beer, so I certainly understand people who don't. But, but you know, I went to a, a university that was anti-alcohol completely. You had to sign a statement that you wouldn't mm-hmm. drink. Okay, fair enough. I wanted to go to university there, so I didn't. No, no problem. Uh, that's fine. But, but to say theologically that all alcohol consumption is immoral mm-hmm. is, is not healthy. And then to boomerang from that, to react to the anti-alcohol stance of a lot of Christians, especially among the young. Uh, I work with a lot of college students, and so when they and others react to 
um, you know, the anti-alcohol stance of the church and go crazy with it, you know, uh, you know, drinking too much, letting their language slip, letting their morals slip, thinking they're being cool Christians. That, that of course, is unbiblical, too. Mm-hmm. So what we've got to do is find a nice biblical norm where alcohol is a gift of God. I mean, the Bible even says that wine is a gift of God. Um, we, we see alcohol as a gift of God. We enjoy it in balance. We don't engage in drunkenness. We don't let it transform our personalities into some immoral direction. And we just receive it as a grace of God, and we drink it in the healthy, wonderful way we're intended to. I think that's the challenge that we've got to go with. So there's two challenges I'm looking for from this book. One is the, the challenge to corporations and businesses right. and Christians that they do what they're called to do and, and do it to the glory of God and for the good of society. And the other is that we get biblical about alcohol. To check out more about the book, hit up Amazon, or you can visit Stephen's website at mansfieldgroup.com. You're listening to Band of Skulls. Uh, the song is I Know What I Am, playing right now on Relevant.fm. Uh, it's from their album Baby Darling Dollface Honey. Wow. And they're touring throughout March. Bandofskulls.com. That's, okay. the, that's the album title you give your album when you're afraid you're going to b- break up with your girlfriend? Yeah. So you just <laughs> the like... mixtape? Yeah, you lay it all out. Baby Darling Dollface Honey, love. Please don't leave me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's time for your feedback. Uh, last week, uh, we asked you a really substantive, thought-provoking uh, topic. Um, we, what was the band name? The Cover Stories. The Cover oh, Stories. Yeah, the cover stories. Uh, somehow, we got on a tangent about a fictional band called The Cover Stories, who, who only uh, recorded covers of popular songs. We wanted to know what the songs should be of their debut album, but the catch is that all of the songs had to have Christian-sounding titles. Not that they were Christian songs, but there had to be Christian-sounding titles. You went over to the episode page at relevantmagazine.com and uh, posted your replies there. And actually, some of you also called in, and uh, there's some pretty good replies. It's good. Uh, So here we go. Uh, Chad B. wrote in, and he said, my band is called blah, blah, blah. No, the band is called The Cover Stories. (laughs) You don't make up the band name. Disqualified. No (laughs) iPad. No iPad. (laughs) I don't care what that kid does. He's not going to buy that. I don't care if he orders one from Apple. We're going to show up and break it. You're banned. Uh, but he does have some good songs, uh, uh, for his, for the debut album of the cover stories. Every day is like Sunday. Uh, Morrissey Mm. praise you fat boy slim peace train, uh, by cat Stevens. Give me shelter by the rolling stones. Little trip to heaven. Uh, Tom Waits. The man comes around Johnny cash lady Madonna by the Beatles. Jesus Built My Hot Rod by Ministry. I feel like you should get two points because he used Ministry as well. That's good. That's true. God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Uh, Stairway to Heaven, of course, by Led Zeppelin. And Does Anybody Here Love My Jesus by Medeski Martin and Wood. All right. My my favorite one on this whole page was by uh, a fella named Emo Saya. And the song is You're a God uh, by the band Vertical Horizon. One is that he picked Vertical Horizon, <laughs> who I'm pretty sure everyone forgot ever existed. And the second thing is, uh, his comment is, a bit of rewarding may have, uh, may have to be done to avoid sounding polytheistic. 
It's true. So I agree. You, I agree. You could change that article there. You had no that Vertical out. Horizon album. I did. I did. <laughs> you know, the Vertical Horizon really is a, a personification of the gospel. Oh. The vertical and the horizontal. It's true. It's the cross. I don't remember them. Vertical Horizon? I was in college. It's because they spun like their music, music video on VH1. It's the, it's you know, their one song, You're Everything I Want, You're Everything I Need. Everything yeah. I want. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's Vertical can we, Horizon. Can we play that at the end of the pod? No. <laughs> yes, please do. Right. We've played a lot of bad songs, and all of a sudden, Cameron just drew a line in the sand. <laughs> no like, Vertical Horizon. I draw, I draw a, a Anything line. that appeared on a VH1 from 1995 to 1999 is banned. It's too, my, soon. My, too soon. It's not vintage yet. <laughs> my goal is to eventually get Nine Days Story of a Girl on oh, the podcast. <laughs> Closing time, yeah. never, never, <laughs> never. Oh. All right, all right. Uh, Anyways, there's other ones. There? Uh, uh, Emily, Pete. sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, Emily uh, has a couple of good ones. She she, uh, she suggests Hey Jude, the Beatles. She oh. says, hey, New Testament reference. Oh. Nice. And then uh, just really digging in the archives, I really feel like Emily went above and beyond. She's got Save the Best for Last, Vanessa Williams. Mm. Pete Juvenal said God Given by Nine Inch Nails. Hmm. Not bad. Uh, Amazing by Kanye West or by Seal. Same name. <laughs> Same song name. Cheryl has one. Creator by Santa Gold. I like Santa Gold. And Believe by Cher. That, I mean, that's right there. That's it. Believe. Yeah. Cher. Travis has uh, Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode. But that, that, was, that was covered by Johnny Cash and it sounded... Pretty much just like a Christian song. Yeah. Uh, American Jesus by Bad Religion. The irony there. Uh, God by John Lennon. Uh, Save Me by Remy Zero. Uh, Chad, you got a call? Hey, guys. This is Adam from Michigan. Long time podcast listener. Second time caller. <laughs> I like the uh, album idea, the cover story album, and I'm just going to take a little tangential. Uh, these are not uh, religious sounding ones. But Boo. if you think about it no from an evangelism point of view, these are the special evangelism tracks. <laughs> I think uh, you could use Ben Halen's Everybody Wants Some, I Want Some Too, and uh, Salt and Pepper Push It, Push It Real Good. <laughs> uh, for those people handing out tracks, just thought uh, that would be a, uh, a nice add to the album. <laughs> and when you talk about things that are named that way, it reminded me of one of my favorite embarrassing moments was... Uh, Back in the days before Amazon and internet book ordering, I used to travel with work and I'd go to larger cities than where I live and go to the Christian bookstores and check out what they had on the shelf. And I was in uh, Southern California, opened up the phone book and checked out the bookstore page because they didn't have a separate listing for Christian bookstores back then. One of the ones I wrote down was the Adam and Eve bookstore. Uh-oh. And through um, all the findings, it had no windows. It wasn't that clearly labeled, and I realized not a Christian bookstore. So, he became a man that day. That's uh, kind of fit the theme. Take care, guys. Bye. Nice. That was good. Oh, that's funny. I like our listeners and second-time callers. <laughs> yes. Let's give that guy an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> All he has to do is go tweet something on our website. I say we give him a gift card to Adam and Eve. <laughs> Just appropriate. <laughs> nice. Okay, well, that'll do it for your feedback. And now for this week's editorial question of the week. Editorial question of the week. Okay, if you listen back 10 minutes ago, Hit rewind if you weren't paying attention. Uh, in his interview with us, Stephen Mansfield basically says, if you choose not to drink, that's fine. But don't assume that that's the right choice for everyone else. Uh, we want to know, for this week's editorial question of the week, what do you think about this? 
We're giving away 10 signed copies of the book. And all you need to do is answer the question um, on the podcast episode page um, or call in to the podcast episode hotline and we'll pick 10 winners at random. Have your answer in. Now, this is the key. This is time sensitive here because we record the podcast earlier than it's posted. Have your answers in by Tuesday, March 23rd. That's Tuesday, not a week from Tuesday. It's just Tuesday. That's Cohen's um, five-month birthday. Oh, that's nice. And to celebrate my son's five-month birthday. Um, <laughs> at 5 p.m. Eastern to be eligible to win because that is when Chad will print off all of the replies <laughs> and hand them to us. Uh, so, And then just listen to next week's podcast to hear the winners, and then we will uh, send you a signed copy of the book. So basically, what do you think of the idea that if you choose not to drink, that's fine, but don't assume that's the right choice for everyone else uh, from a Christian worldview. Are we looking any, for anything particular, Cameron, from these responses? Or are we just going to take uh, any response? Are we looking for serious? Are we looking for witty? What, do we want to clarify? Well, I'm curious what people think about that statement. Okay. As a Christian, what do you think about that statement? Uh, we had an article on drinking uh, on, on the website and in the magazine in the last three or four months, and it got hundreds of comments and replies. Uh, it's obviously a topic that people have thought a lot about and a topic that not everybody agrees on from a Christian point of view. Um, and so he says, if you choose not to drink, that's fine, but don't assume that's the right choice for everyone else. We just want to know what you think about that particular idea. And for choosing to win the books, is it like, we'll just randomly pick out yeah. of however many we get? Yep. Doesn't we will matter randomly we pick like them. Not, it's not, not that we have to agree with you or anything like that. Uh, we will read our favorites on the on the air, but we will randomly choose the 10 mm -hmm. uh, respondents. So there you go. On that note, that'll wrap up this week's edition of the podcast. Many thanks to the Gregory Brothers for talking to us. Again, you can check them out at thegregorybrothers.com or go to YouTube. They have a really popular YouTube channel. Go check it out. It will... Uh, it will just go ahead and set aside an evening because it's a lot of fun clicking through it. Maybe kick back in a hot tub with your iPhone. You never know. See, go, see where it takes you. See where it takes you. <laughs> go, back, yeah. go back in time. Yeah. If you drop an iPhone into a hot tub, it does turn into a hot time machine. I guarantee you that. And also thanks to Stephen Mansfield for talking to us. His new book is called The Search for God in Guinness. It's available everywhere, just released. And uh, make sure to... Uh, be part of this week's editorial question of the week uh, to get a signed copy. On that note, we'll wrap it. I'm Cameron Strang. Good day, mate. <laughs> I'm Ryan Ham. <laughs> You're never going to get me lucky charms. Seriously. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> Couldn't help it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Relevant Podcast. For more, go to relevantmagazine.com. I maybe. That's not. <laughs> <laughs>